0: We are in part six of a series on the Gospel of John, and we've called it the last word because the Apostle John literally has the last word about Jesus in the New Testament. His Gospel, his three epistles, the book of Revelation, he writes those five books at the end of the first century. He's the last to write of any of the Apostles. He's the only original voice left. He's the sole surviving elder of the New Testament church for at least three decades. Everybody else is martyred sometime in the A.D. 60s. John lives into the A.D. 90s, and that's when he picks up his pen. Sixty years after the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost. Now, we've been walking our way through the gospel. We're going to take a little bit more of a walk tonight, and we've been working off this chart. John spends the first half of his gospel chapters 1 to 11, summarizing three years of Jesus' ministry. And in that section, something very important and unique to John, there are seven miraculous signs that John chose because he knew they would identify Jesus as the Word made flesh. And the last of the seven signs in that section is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And that's really when everything uh, goes crazy. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, they begin to plot to put Jesus to death. They've just had enough. And then John spends the last half of his Gospels, chapter 12 through 21, summarizing not three years, not even three months, but one week of Jesus' earthly ministry. Five full chapters there, chapter 13 through 17, summarize one conversation that Jesus has with his disciples at the Last Supper. And so that's basically the structure of the book, and we're walking our way through it in this series. But the important thing to remember is that John isn't just doing a biography of Jesus, telling us what Jesus uh, did and where he went. He's actually giving us a theology of Jesus. He's telling us what Jesus said about himself and who Jesus really is, And so to John and to us, Jesus is the word made flesh. He is God manifest in the flesh, and uh, he is the last word. So we pick it up at chapter 7. There's been some conflict already between Jesus and the religious leaders, and John 7 begins, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee that's northern Israel, he would not walk in Jewry, that's Judea, where most of the Jews live, because the Jews sought to kill him. There's a sinister shift that's beginning to happen in the Gospel of John. It began with Jesus' healing of the crippled man at the Pool of Bethesda in chapter 5, because that was his first miracle in Jerusalem. So it was the first miracle that the Pharisees actually saw for themselves. And they were not happy About Jesus breaking their rules for the Sabbath and they definitely were not happy when he declared himself to be God and so for this reason Jesus has retreated to northern Israel to Galilee for a season and he doesn't travel to Judea not because he's scared but because it is not yet time for him to die. But one of the annual feasts of the Jews is soon to happen, and all Jewish men are required to attend, so it's setting us up for this next little piece in the Gospel of John. Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand, and Jesus' brethren therefore said to him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly." If thou do these things, show thyself to the world, for neither did his brethren believe in him. I would imagine, in fact I know, that there are people here and you have family members who don't believe in Jesus. And if you do, you're in good company, because even Jesus had family members that didn't believe in Jesus. Not even one of his brothers who had lived with him for nearly 30 years was a disciple before his crucifixion. It was probably difficult, in their defense, it's probably difficult to have Jesus for a brother, a firstborn brother, an older brother. After all, this is the boy who astounded the rabbis in the temple with his wisdom at the tender age of 12. This is the young man who increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This is the man who was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So his siblings, they no doubt grew grew increasingly self-conscious around Jesus as they matured. They could see, when they grew up a little bit, they could see the obvious contrast between their sinfulness and his sinlessness. And then, to top it all off, their parents, Mary and Joseph, they knew the truth about who their firstborn son really was. There's no way that didn't have an impact on how they treated Jesus. And then, to top it all off, Jesus became very famous, the Bible tells us, in Luke 4, in his early ministry. So, you've got a famous uh, firstborn brother, Um, virgin-born, divine origin. uh, It's not a good situation. Some of you might know what it is like to be overshadowed by a gifted older brother. Imagine being totally eclipsed by a perfect gifted older brother. You know, when they're sitting around the table swapping family stories, it's pretty hard to match a star and angels appearing in the heavens At your older brother's birth, that's pretty hard to compete with. So there was no doubt a lot of jealousy and friction in the family. And at this point, it appears impossible that Jesus' brothers would ever follow him. You know, the statement familiarity breeds contempt. It was never more true than among Mary and Joseph's children. There was probably a lot of pain behind these words when Jesus spoke them. Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. But this story, I'm glad to tell you, it wasn't over yet. After Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, his brothers were converted, and every one of them were present in the upper room on the day of Pentecost to be filled with his spirit. Two of them, James and Jude, even went on to write epistles to the New Testament church. So here's the setting preparing for the day of Pentecost. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. So the story changed after his resurrection. And James and Jude went on to lead in the church uh, to, to write epistles. Imagine this. This is Jude, the younger half-brother of Jesus, writing about his brother. Jude, the first verse and the last verse, the one-chapter book of Jude. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called last verse of his epistles. He's writing about his older half-brother, Jesus. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Can you imagine what phrases like those meant for James and for Jude? The Lord of glory, God robed in flesh, had once slept beside them, walked with them, ate at the same dinner table, played with the same friends, did chores with them, went to school with them, grew up with them. But he also endured their unbelief and he died for their sins and then he filled them with his spirit all because Jesus was not just another boy or another man. He was the Word made flesh. He was God manifest in flesh. But at this point, Jesus' brothers don't yet believe him. That's probably three years in the future. All they see is the celebrity factor of his ministry. And that's why they're pushing him in John chapter 7 You need to go to Judea, you need to show up at the Feast of Tabernacles, and you need to perform some of these miracles and impress the crowds. See, to his unconverted brethren, that would have been the perfect solution. If you are who you say you are, then beat the Pharisees at their own game on their own turf. Why would you stay in obscurity when you can be a celebrity? They've lived with Jesus for nearly 30 years but they still don't comprehend the sacrificial nature of his ministry. And so Jesus has an answer for them, and we see this answer a lot in this section of John's Gospel. He keeps saying, my time is not yet come. Jesus refuses to get ahead of divine timing. It would behoove us to learn a lesson from that. He will give his life only in due time, Romans 5. In the accepted time, 2 Corinthians 6. In the time appointed of the Father, Galatians 4. And only when the fullness of the time is come. Jesus says that emphatically to his brothers. And so brothers and sisters, when you're waiting on God's purpose excuse me, timing is everything. Somebody say, timing is everything. Now would be a good time for a bottle of water, probably. And when one coughs, they all cough in the presence of the Lord. So why don't you just let it all out? Worship, prayer, praise, or a cough, whatever. My goodness. My goodness. I brought something home from wherever I was. It is not COVID-19. <laughs> Let's not do that again, my goodness. When you're waiting on God's purpose, thank you, timing is everything. But if you're wanting to promote yourself, any time will do. If you're just trying to promote yourself, you can do it anytime. And that's what Jesus says to his brothers. Jesus says to them, my time is not yet come, but your time, it's always ready. You could do what you want to do anytime. He says, I am not going up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet come. Jesus will not travel to Jerusalem with his brothers. Why? Why? He doesn't want divine purpose to be tainted by their mixed motives. And he doesn't want the controversy and the curiosity of the crowd to mess anything up. So this passage tells us that he travels to the feast alone a bit later, and he refuses to reveal himself until the middle of the week, the middle of the feast. Now the Pharisees, they take offense To his teaching. Some in the crowd even try to seize him, to grab him, but they can't because his hour is not yet come. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. Would you lift up your hands and pray just for a minute? There is something so powerful about you living in God's purpose. No, the prayer wasn't a filler. There is something so powerful about you living in God's purpose. Some of you right now are trying to make decisions. Some of you are trying to wrestle with things, and there's pressure for you to jump ahead of God's timing. Can I say to you very, very emphatically, it could very well be in your life, your hour, is not yet come. And so you cannot get ahead of the purpose and the plan of God. Would you lift up your hands again and pray? The prayer is not a filler. Please don't get ahead of the plan and the purpose of God in your life. I have watched people make shipwreck because they got ahead of the pastor's advice. They got ahead of the council of God's people. They got ahead of the council of godly elders. They messed up their life. Jesus is teaching us something. He's God manifest in the flesh, and he's still saying, my hour is not yet come. Every once in a while, you've got to slow down enough to let God direct your steps. It is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. I have earnest young people run up to me all the time. <coughs> Would you sign my Bible? And I will. I feel a little stupid and awkward, but I will. And when I do, I always put something beside my name because my signature means nothing, but this verse means everything to me. Psalm 119, verse 133. Order my steps in your word. That's it. That's it. Order my steps in your word. Jesus is saying, I will not get one step ahead of divine purpose. I will not go there if it's not my time. I will not move from here if it's not my time. He's teaching us something. And when you're in the divine will of God, you hear me, nobody can touch you. People say weird things. The devil tried to kill me. Well, he can try all he wants. You are not leaving this planet one second before God says you're leaving if you are in the purpose of God. You are indestructible if you are in the purpose of God. My goodness, I'm stuck here. I'm stuck here. Here, Here's the deal. Jesus will not travel to Jerusalem with his brothers because he doesn't trust their motives. You can't trust everybody's motives in your life. You can't trust everybody's advice in your life. You need to get you a trusted pastor. You need to get you some trusted godly elders. You need to follow people that have been following Jesus for longer than you have. And they've been a success doing that. And you need to make sure that you are accountable. Man, I wasn't planning on getting stuck here. Uh, My time is not yet come. And it protects him. It keeps the plan of God in sync. Now, this same feast. So now the time is come. Jesus goes up in the middle of the week, and it gets to the last day of the feast, and here's what happens. This is perfect timing. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, who, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Don't have to guess. John explains. But this spake he of the spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given at this time, because Jesus was not yet glorified. See, because Jesus is willing to wait For divine timing, there will soon be a Gethsemane and a Calvary and a garden tomb and a Mount of Olives and an upper room. Because he is willing to wait for divine timing, there will be an outpouring of the Holy Ghost that will change the world, altering history and destiny and eternity. That's because he's willing to stay in sync with the purpose of God. I know we're all in a rush. I know they keep telling us the rapture's coming, Jesus is returning, the world's gonna end. They keep telling us all that stuff and I'm sure they're all right. But here's the deal. It doesn't help for you to rush ahead of the purpose of God. Somebody's life is going to be interrupted by the rapture. Somebody's ministry trajectory is going to be short-circuited by the rapture. And that's okay because the last time I checked, this kingdom is not your kingdom and it's not my kingdom. It's his kingdom. So we just work in sync with the Holy Ghost and we just be very careful... To order our steps. Who? In His Word. Every day, Jesus, order my steps in your word. I wish somebody lift up your hand and pray that for a minute. God, just order my steps in your word. I got out of sync, but I need to get back in sync. I, I got messed up a little bit, but I need to get back in sync. Order my steps in your word. And the rest of that verse says, and let not iniquity have dominion over me. You're bulletproof if you're in the purpose of God, if you're walking in the spirit, if you're walking in his word.
1: Oh, thank you, Jesus.
0: Now, when Jesus says, out of his belly shall flow, that's the Greek word kolia, he's not referring to belly as in stomach, as in food, he's referring to belly as in womb, as in birth, whether you are male or female, is immaterial, spiritually. When you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, those rivers of living water that flow out of you are able to give birth to things in the supernatural realm. That's why every once in a while, one of the pastors here says, why don't we just pray in the Spirit? Let's just pray in the Holy Ghost because there's a birthing that happens there. So John said the Holy Ghost was not yet given in John chapter 7 because Jesus was not yet glorified I'm thrilled to tell you Jesus has already died, been buried, risen again ascended, he sits on the throne the everlasting throne in heaven he's already been glorified and so anybody in this room right now could lift up their hands and be filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, if you've repented of your sins, you are a candidate to be filled to overflowing with rivers of living water flowing out of you, you can have the the power of the Spirit in your life. You can have the power of the Spirit in your home. You can pray in the Spirit and birth things in the supernatural realm. But you've got to walk in His purpose and in His timing. My, my. So back to John 7. Now the debates have started and the division has started and yes, the death threats have started. For the second time, the crowd tries to seize Jesus, but cannot take him. And even the officers, this is kind of funny, even the officers dispatched by the Pharisees to arrest Jesus have returned dumbfounded after hearing him speak. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, why didn't you bring him? We sent you to arrest him. And the officers said, never a man spake like this man. They didn't have a good answer. They were dumbfounded. Mark explains maybe a little better in his gospel. He said they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. There are a lot of eloquent, educated voices in the world today. I can't speak for you. I can only speak for me. I'd rather have an anointed pastor who gets a word from God and stands in a pulpit without fear or favor and maybe stumbles over a word now and again or maybe one of the pastors didn't put it together quite like you thought they should. But I'd rather have a man of God in touch with God preach to me the word of God than try to go out. I'd want somebody that has authority in the spirit and not just every other kind of voice. In chapter 8, the Pharisees take matters into their own hands and they try to make Jesus appear as if he disrespects and disregards the law because they know that will get him in trouble with the populace. They will do anything or they will say anything to try to make the crowds turn against him. And when John tells this little story, he's the only one who does. You can feel the tension in John's account. When he recounts this confrontation. And the scribes and Pharisees. Brought unto him a woman. Taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst. They said unto him. Master. This woman was taken in adultery. In the very act. Now Moses in the law. Commanded us. That such should be stoned. You can hear the sinister glee. In their voice. But what sayest thou? thou. They're trying to trap him. If he says, stone her, like the law of Moses said, Jesus has now become merciless and cruel. If he says, don't stoner, her, let her go, he's disregarded and disobeyed the law. They think they've got him trapped. This, they said, tempting him. Also, they might have something to accuse him of. And Jesus ignored them. And Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. There are as many sermons about what he wrote on the ground as there are preachers. I'm not even going near that. I'm just going to tell you this. The sheer hypocrisy of the Pharisees is astounding. For one thing, where is the man taken in adultery? Leviticus 20 and 10 declared the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Furthermore, why are they asking Jesus in the first place if they don't believe he has any authority? They've simply arranged a public spectacle to try and trap him in his words. But when Jesus, God in flesh, answers, they are the ones who are humiliated. So when they continued asking him and badgering him and pestering him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, here's my answer. He that is without sin, you cast the first stone. That's my answer. You can cut the tension with a knife in the temple that day. See, Jesus knows something. If every Old Testament murderer and adulterer had been killed without mercy... Jesus' own ancestor, King David, wouldn't have survived. And we wouldn't even have a Messiah for them to come ask a question to. So he neither condemns nor condones this woman's sin. He does something that probably those Pharisees have never done. He shows mercy. I am so grateful and thankful every day of my life for the mercy of God. Stupid, dumb, rebellious things that I've done instead of Him publicly flogging me and humiliating me. He's forgiven me and He's cleansed me and He let me keep serving Him. I am so grateful for the mercy of God. We can never be a church That when somebody says, thank God for forgiving me, that we try to figure out what they did. Thank God for his mercy. Well, I wonder what you've been up to. I got an answer for you. It's not of the caliber of Jesus' answer, but here's my answer. None of your business. You say, is this a church that covers up sin? Oh, no. No, we believe that you need to repent of your sin and you need to be restored to your place in God. And sometimes we need to make restitution. The Bible talks about that. We need to do the right to correct the wrong. So no, we're not one of those churches that just covers up sin and hopes nobody finds out. But we are not a church that throws away people. We are not a church that discards people who make mistakes. Or hates on people that messed up. No, that's not the kind of church we are. We're the kind of church that shows mercy. And if you don't have mercy in your heart, you don't have the heart of Jesus, you have the heart of the Pharisees. Why, why? I was trying to figure this out. I think I got it. Why does only John... Record this incident. No other gospel writer records it. If it hadn't been for John's pen, you wouldn't even know about this anonymous woman taken in the very act of adultery. Why only John? I think I got it. I think it's because he's writing 30 years after the other gospel writers and 60 years after the church began in the book of Acts chapter 2. Here's why I think only John writes this. Six decades is more than enough time for a redeemed people to raise a couple of generations of religious people and for them all to forget just exactly where God brought them from and for them to become judgmental people. It's about enough time. We always need to be reminded. I don't care how long you've been in this church or any other church. I don't care if you cut your teeth on a Pentecostal pew. We always need to be reminded of God's mercy because he wants us, he's counting on us, he's commissioned us to show that mercy to others. But if you don't appreciate that you needed his mercy, you can't bring yourself low enough to to extend that mercy to others because that's the way you see it but if you've been the recipient of God's amazing grace and his tender mercy, it's pretty easy for you to look at somebody that's failed and fallen and messed up and you have the heart of Jesus toward them and you forgive them and you work to restore them and help them. I'm sorry to make you do this so much, but I just feel something very special here tonight. Would you lift up your hands and just pray about God's mercy in your life? Maybe you need to thank Him for mercy or maybe you need to let Him convict you that you haven't been merciful, but whatever it is on either side of that coin, Jesus is speaking to somebody tonight just like He spoke to them in John chapter 8. It's the very same thing. It's the very same thing. Yeah, in light of that, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. Why don't we take a minute and just pray through that way? I am so thankful,
1: Jesus, for your mercy. I am so thankful for your grace. Oh, yes,
0: God. And here's what happened. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, they were hiding stuff too. They went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw no one but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, Where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, if somebody's been around for a while, you've got 15 degrees in theology, all below zero degrees cold as a cucumber just before you think that we just don't care about sin and we don't care about people living right I just got to say this if Jesus doesn't condemn you if Jesus doesn't accuse you you have no accusers that matter end of story you can be set free from your sin, but there's another part to this, if you will go and sin no more. See, true repentance is about two things. It's about God's willingness to forgive us, and it's combined with our willingness to forsake our sin. God forgives our sin, we forsake our sin, and without both sides of that coin, it's not true repentance. Go and sin no more. I will forgive you, you forsake that, and we're good. It's amazing, and what a privilege repentance is. I know we get excited when somebody gets baptized in Jesus' name, and we should. I know we're thrilled when somebody receives the Holy Ghost, and we rejoice, and we should. But there's celebration in heaven when one sinner repents of their sins. Because repentance is that first initial decision that says, God said he'd forgive me, so I'm going to forsake that old life. It all starts there. Now chapter 8, after we get through the tension of that, chapter 8, it also records a lengthy discourse by Jesus in the temple, including several times where he drives them crazy because he keeps calling himself, I am, it drives them crazy. John chapter 8 verse 12, then spake Jesus again unto them saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John 8, 24, I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins. For if, watch this, if you believe not that I am, the word he is in italics, it's not in the original. If you believe not that I am, you will die in your sins. Verse 28, then said Jesus unto them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then shall you know that I am the word he in italics, that I do nothing of myself. Jesus tells them, if you follow me, you'll walk in the light of revelation because I am the light. But if you don't believe that I am almighty God, you will die in your sins. And then Jesus says, this is amazing. We'll come back to it in a few weeks or months. How I don't know how long this series is. Then Jesus says something really strange to them. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am. Watch what happens, Pharisees. Watch what happens, Sanhedrin. Watch what happens, all of you crowds. On the day you lift up the Son of Man, on the day you hang him on a cross, you hang him high and you crucify him, something is going to happen On that day, at that cross, and it will prove conclusively that I am almighty God. I don't know if you feel the undercurrent of what's in this room tonight, but I sure feel it. And as he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus looks at them and he says, you continue in my word, you become my disciples, you know the truth, and then the truth shall make you free. Brothers and sisters, there is no freedom without revelation. You've got to follow Jesus. You've got to love Jesus. You've got to talk to Jesus. You've got to let him talk to you. The reason we gather in Bible study and in services and we listen to preachers preach and teach the word of God, we're wanting to know the truth. And if you follow in his truth, if you continue in his word, then the truth will make you free. Now, they don't like what he just said. In fact, they don't like anything he said. And so the scribes and the Pharisees and the leaders, the religious people, they get indignant at this point. They're mad at Jesus. They answered him, we be Abraham's seed and we were never in bondage to any man. How do you say you shall be made free? It's quite comical actually. They rise up in their pride and they say, we were never in bondage to any man. Anybody remember Egypt? 430 years in bondage. Anybody remember the Midianites or the Philistines or Assyria or maybe Babylon or Medo-Persia or Greece? Or how about Rome? You're still under bondage to Rome this minute while you're having this conversation with Jesus. You say, we've never been in bondage to any man. But Jesus takes this opportunity not to mock them, but to teach a powerful principle about spiritual authority. Jesus answered them, "'Verily, verily, I say unto you, "'whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin, "'and the servant abideth not in the house forever, "'but the Son abideth forever. "'If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, "'you shall be free indeed.'" What Jesus just said is a mouthful of theology. If you continue in sin, if you keep going back to sin, if you keep sliding into sin, if you keep hiding your sin, if you keep dabbling in sin, if you continue in sin, you're a slave to sin. Period. End of story. Full stop. You may think you're the one in control, but if you can't stop it, sin has become your master. And here's what Jesus just said. And another slave, I I thank God for all the professional people we have It's wonderful, but another slave can't set you free spiritually. They may know a whole lot. They may have a lot of degrees behind their name. They may have a practice that's lasted for decades. It may be a wonderful success story. They may have helped a lot of people. But when it comes to spiritual things, another slave to sin cannot set you free from sin. Only the Son can set you free from sin. Truly free. Totally free. Really free. Completely free. Absolutely free. Jesus said, you shall be free indeed. My goodness. You see, that's what's different about a church family. We're not just all gathered here trying to pretend that we're perfect. In fact, for most of us, now there's a few wackos in this place, I'm sure, but, but most of us will be the first people to tell you, we're not perfect, don't have it all together, don't, don't look at us for all of your, you know, don't, don't use me for a model. But the end of the story is this. Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. So we don't have any claim to fame other than this. We're free from sin. We're born again. We're not worthy, but we're heaven bound. We're not worthy, but we have real joy and peace and righteousness in the Holy Ghost. It's not us, it's Him. Don't look at us, look at Him. Don't point to us, point to Him. Don't give us the credit. Give Him the credit. Another slave can't set you free. You can talk to them for 16 hours a week, and they can't set you free. They're a slave to sin too. But if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. He can break the shackles of your addiction just like that. He can break the shackles of bondage. He can break shackles of perversion just like that. He can do anything because he's the last word from God. He's God manifest in the flesh. And I want to get on and keep moving, but I need you to lift up your hands and worship Him for that fact. The Son has made me free. The Son set me free. I'm free indeed.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Oh my. Now the Pharisees,
0: they don't believe any of that. They don't believe Jesus is born of a virgin. And so they often accuse him in the Gospels of being an illegitimate child. High insult. We be not born of fornication, they say in one place. We have one father, even God. We're not like you. But Jesus turns that discussion. He's he's brilliant. Don't argue with God. But Jesus turns that discussion of fatherhood around and uses it against them. He says, if God were your father, you'd love me. Just let that one settle. If God were your father, you'd love me. Why? Because I'm God. That's why. And then he says this to them. This was not a good moment for them. You are actually of your father, the devil. And the lusts of your father, you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. That's why you're trying to kill me. He abode not in the truth. That's why you don't like what I say. Because there is no truth in him. Now this one this is amazing. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. One paraphrase says, lying is the devil's native language. It's true. When the devil speaks, he lies. Maybe you've met somebody like that. We do have a saying kicking around in our culture that, you know, if their lips are moving, they're lying. Have have you ever heard that said about anybody? Please don't point if they're in this room. But if you've ever heard that said about somebody, would you lift your hand? If their lips are moving, they're lying. That's the devil. If his lips are moving, if he's whispering in your ear, he's lying 100% of the time. He tells you you might as well give up. Lie. He tells you God doesn't love you. Lie. He tells you you might as well leave church. Lie. He tells you you're no good. Lie. He tells you you'll never get back up on your feet. Lie. He tells you all kinds of junk. He's a liar and the father of it, if the devil's lips are moving, he's lying. So you need to resist the devil and the Bible says he will flee from you. When he speaks, he's lying. But when my God speaks, he's telling you the truth. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are more than a conqueror. You are the head and not the tail. You are above and not beneath. When my God speaks, he's always telling the truth. If his lips are moving, I'm listening. Man. Whoo! Now they're really mad. Oh, my goodness. Like some of you they are looking at the clock. They're really mad. They say in verse 56, your father... Jesus says to them, your father, Abraham, he's making them mad. Their blood pressure is about 300 over 150. Jesus says, your father, Abraham, they've just been bragging on Abraham's our father and we love Abraham and Abraham would love us. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day and he did see it. And, it, and was glad. And the Jews, this blows their mind, and they're so mad right now. Then said the Jews unto him, you're not yet 50 years old. You're 30 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, verily, verily. Oh, it's about to get hot there in the temple. He said, I say unto you, before Abraham was And he reaches back to that burning bush to the most important moment of revelation in Israel's history when God gave Moses his holy name, I am that I am. And Jesus looks them square in the face and he says, before Abraham was, I am They didn't even wait. Then took they up stones to cast at him. Why? He just blasphemed. He said he was God. Now I know there's a million theologians and pastors and preachers today that will tell you Jesus wasn't saying, I am God. He was saying, I'm like God, kind of God, a part of God. They knew exactly what Jesus just said. They picked up stones to stone him for the penalty of blasphemy, a crime in their law. But Jesus hid himself. It's like he disappeared, vanished, and went out of the temple going through the midst of them. It's like he turned invisible. I can't prove it that he turned invisible, but wouldn't that have been cool? He passed through the midst of them and so passed by. What Jesus just said to them. John just does this all the time in his gospel. Before Abraham ever left Ur of the Chaldees, following a God that he couldn't see, to a land that he'd never seen, Jesus said, I was there to give him the directions. I was the one who set his GPS. I was the one who was with him every step of his journey. You know why? Because I am that I am. I'm the eternal God, the almighty God in a body of flesh. Furthermore, furthermore, Abraham rejoiced to see my day on the top of Mount Moriah. What do you mean, Jesus? I mean on that day that Abraham walked to Mount Moriah and he thought he was going to have to sacrifice his own son of promise and it grieved him. But on that day, just as Abraham was about to plunge the knife into his boy's chest, he couldn't figure out why that would ever please God, but it was a test of his faith. And just about the time the knife was about to make its downward trajectory, there was a voice that said, Abraham, Abraham. And he turned around and God had provided a sacrificial lamb on the top of Mount Moriah. God showed Abraham a little preview of what was going to happen at Calvary. God said, rejoice, Abraham. This is just a dress rehearsal for the real sacrificial lamb. And by the way, it will be offered on the very same mountain because Mount Moriah is exactly where the city of Jerusalem is. Can you comprehend it? That God picked a spot and said, I'm going to take Abraham up there and I'm going to do a little drama and Abraham is going to be overwhelmed with rejoicing to see my day. And when Jesus walked this earth, they took him up that very same mountainside. They took him to the top of Jerusalem, Mount Moriah. And when he was crucified, And the blood came streaming out of his body. That was the reality of what Abraham had seen thousands of years before. And he might have just inspired you, but he made them mad. They knew exactly what he was claiming, and that's why they tried to stone him for blasphemy. But he just passed through their midst. Why? Because his time was not yet. There's something so powerful about staying in sync and in time with the purpose of God in your life. Now, almost done. Jesus has already stated, I am the light of the world. And in chapter 9, he performs a miracle that proves he is the light of the world. It's miracle 6 out of 7 that John has chosen to share with us. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but this is so that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. But as long as I am in the world, I am, he does it again, the light of, of the world. Who did sin, Jesus? That's usually our question. Who sinned? Why do you think they're sick? Why do you think they're struggling? Why do you think? Why do you think? That's usually our question. Who sinned? But it is the wrong question. See, they've forgotten the story of Job, that God can display his glory in a suffering person just as much as he can display his glory in a successful person. Could we grow up in God and get that through our head? That there are people that have suffered, there are people with weaknesses, there are people that have struggled, and their lives display the glory of God in a way that most of us, if we had any sense, we would want to imitate and emulate. God can get just as much glory out of somebody that's suffering as somebody that's successful. God had allowed this man to be blind since birth, all for one reason, so they could come to this exact day, so he could grow exactly this old, so he could be in exactly this place, and Jesus could heal him and bring God glory. I can't tell you why your trial has gone on as long as it has. That's above my pay grade. I can't tell you why you've prayed, and the Lord didn't seem to answer when you prayed what you prayed. That's above my pay grade. But I can tell you this. If you were a child of God, your life is for one purpose, and it is to bring God glory, and he can get glory out of your times of struggle just as much as he can get glory out of your times of success. Verse 6, when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and took that clay and he anointed the eyes of the blind men with the clay. And he said unto him, go wash in the pool of Siloam by interpretation the name meant sent. And he went his way therefore and washed, washed the mud out of his eyes and came back seeing. Now see, that would be a big deal for you. Can you imagine we'd have that on every kind of social media feed? pastor put clay on somebody's eyes and they can see. We'd have slow motion video. It was no big deal for Jesus. He already did this. God made seeing eyes out of clay in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 when he formed man out of the dust of the earth and he became a living soul. So since God had already made not only seeing eyes but a whole body out of clay, this was no problem for Jesus at all. But it was a real problem for the Pharisees because once again, Jesus has healed somebody on their Sabbath day. And their interrogation of this man, Jesus has already left the scene of the crime. So they can't interrogate him, but they interrogate this former blind man. And it becomes a comedy of errors. First of all, he calls Jesus a prophet. That's not what they wanted. Secondly, he doesn't know where Jesus went, so they can't track him down. And thirdly, this is the funny part. They keep questioning him about Jesus. He doesn't even know what Jesus looks like because he was blind when they met. I don't know what he looks like. So then the Pharisees, they go bring in his parents because, as we all know, everything that's wrong in your life is your parents' fault. So they bring in the parents And start to interrogate them. And his parents, they just say, well, your parents have been saying all your life. You just didn't know it. He's of age. Ask him. (laughs) That's what they said. The Bible specifically says because they were terrified that they might get put out of the synagogue. These Pharisees, these leaders have incredible, vicious power. And so when the parents say he's of age, ask him. They go get the formerly blind guy again. And it leads to one more former confrontation with this formerly blind man. (laughs) I love this. Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know, you've got to admit, that this man, Jesus, he's a sinner. And we love his answer. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. I only know one thing. That I used to be blind, but right now I can see. That I used to be dead, but right now I'm alive. But I used to be bound, but right now I'm free. But I used to be depressed, but right now I have joy. But I used to be filled with anxiety, but right now I have peace. But I used to be addicted, but right now I'm living in liberty. All I can tell you about this, Jesus, I can't answer every deep debate and theological question you've got. I can just tell you this. That was me. This is me. Jesus is the distance between the two Jesus is the reason for the change Jesus is the savior of my soul and he's the reason I live and breathe I can't answer all of your deep questions but I've got a testimony once I was blind but now I can see oh I wish you'd make some noise I got one last scripture so I'm almost done but I wish you'd lift up the name of Jesus uh, That is our conclusion as well. We have the same testimony as a blind man. We're not here to hate anyone. We're not here to berate or debate anyone. We're not here to denigrate or agitate anybody. We're just here with a testimony. Once I was blind, but now I can see. I'm not saying that I'm better than you. I'm not saying I'm smarter than you. I'm just saying I found Jesus and he made all the difference in my life. There's a lot of Christians that don't give a testimony because they're afraid of the questions. You've got the best answer to any question that ever gets thrown at you. Once I was blind, but now I see. Once I was bound, but today I'm free. You don't need anything better than that. So, we're just gathered here tonight on a Bible study night with a pastor who's been hacking and coughing, and he's just irritating to listen to, but we're still celebrating the Word of God. We're just here tonight to say, with that formerly blind man, he looked at Jesus and said, Lord, I believe. That's my testimony. <laughs> Lord, I believe. That's my testimony. Jesus, I believe. I believe. I believe, I believe, I believe. I believe that the miraculous can happen. I believe that this church can experience a revival that will blow our minds. I believe that the Holy Ghost is going to be outpoured in the last days in the city of Fredericton. Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. I believe. If the Bible says it can happen, I'm going to claim it. That's my testimony. Lord, I believe. And that's why John wrote in the first place. That's why John wrote down these miracles in the first place. He says at the end of his book, I wrote down these miracles so you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Here it is. And that believing you might have life through His name. I have life because I believed. I have freedom because I believed. I got mercy and grace because I believed. I got deliverance from bondage because I believed. I'm done. Lift up your hands, propel your praise into the atmosphere of this room because that Jesus who talked to that blind man and changed his life, he's here in this sanctuary right now. I can feel him. I'm aware of him. I worship him. I believe that he's here. That means he can heal you. He can deliver you. He can restore you. He can fix you. He can do anything. There is no problem that's too great for God. There is no trouble that he can't snatch You out of there is no perplexity in your mind that He can't give you peace. You feel that He's here right now. Everybody, stand to your feet. Let's give Jesus just an
1: ovation of praise, a lifted praise. Yes, yes, yes. Rito lo basia serebaha. Mendo lo do la basia serebahete quesa. Ireba la dolabasho rebahate la basa. Erebolo dolabasian rebo cotalabasa. Etolo che sa baha. Irebolo de la basia. I feel deliverance in this room.
0: I feel outpouring in this room. I feel anointing in this room. I know some of you this is out of your comfort zone and out of your nature. But if you would, because of what he's here for and what he's doing in our midst, if you just swing around, get somebody by the hand or put your hand on their shoulder and let's pray for them. Let's pray together. Would you lift up your voice as loud to pray for them as you were lifting up your voice to worship the Lord? Because it's not just about my little personal relationship with him. It's about my brothers and my sisters. It's about his church it's about doing this together it's about being the light of the world for him who was the light of the world Leto I don't care what kind of hell has broken out in your home. He can fix it. He can deliver you from it. He can turn it around. I don't care what kind of sickness is in your body. He can heal it. He can deliver you from it. He can turn it around. I don't care how the devil has attacked your mind and your heart. He can deliver you from it. He can fix it. He can turn it
1: around. He's the I am that I am. Jesus is here right now. Reach out and touch him. Jesus
0: is passing this way. Reach out and touch him. If I could just touch the hem of his garment, that little woman said, I know I can be made whole. I know I can be delivered. I know I can be healed.
1: Yes, yes, yes. This is why we do
0: Bible study, not so we can walk out feeling smart or educated, but so we can have an encounter with the Word of God. And where the Word of a king is, there is power. I was going to say one final time I'll say it this way maybe one final time would you lift up everything you've got to the Lord would you fill this sanctuary with a great praise a resounding thanks an offering of thanksgiving and honor and glory and adoration once I was blind now I can see once I was bound now I'm free Jesus did this for me. I'm so glad Jesus did this for me.
1: Yes, 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 yes. Yes, yes, yes.
0: Jesus, I pray right now that your word would dig deep into hearts and it would inspire faith in lives. God, somebody here, they've gotten out of sync with your purpose. They've gotten ahead of your timing. And, and they've tried to make it happen like Abraham did. They've tried to make it happen outside of your will. And in doing so, they've fumbled the ball and they've fallen and they've failed and they've messed up. But Jesus... That's not a disqualifier when the miracle worker is in the room. And so Jesus, I don't know who, I don't know what, but I know you're here and I know what I feel in your spirit. So God, I pray that you would lift up, that you would restore, that you would bring back joy and peace and righteousness. I pray, Jesus. That you would do what only you can do and change what only you can change and fix what only you can fix and heal what only you can heal and deliver what only you can deliver. Because he that the Son has set free, he's free indeed. So we claim the promise of your word tonight. I speak deliverance to a broken mind. I speak healing to a broken body. I speak restoration to a broken home. I speak peace to a broken mind. Jesus, I speak your word over your people tonight.